As Chair of Inigard, I'm delighted to welcome you to the International Virtual Conference, The World of Work, The Great Reset. We have six fantastic sessions with participants and speakers from across the globe. Uh, you're very welcome to this session. For those that don't know, Inigard is an international employment law network across 14 countries. I really do hope that you enjoy the next session and please feel free to participate in the networking sessions afterwards. Thanks very much. Hello, everyone. Uh, everyone that's out there. Uh, okay. Uh, my name is Carl Hedenstrom. I'm a partner and lawyer with the Morris Law Firm in Stockholm, and I have the honor of being your moderator for the second panel at the Inangard Virtual Conference, The World of Work, The Great Reset. And uh, I think we have a great topic. We're going to talk about the vaccination, the impact on the workplace, and uh, which, of course, is a very relevant topic considering the world we're living in right now. To help me do this, since I'm not an expert on vaccinations at all, uh, of course, I deal with labor-related matters because of the pandemic, such as short-time work and the like, but you would be quite bored, I think, if I would, if I would talk about those subjects for an hour. So to help me here, I have a very distinguished panel, and uh, I'm going to start introducing them one and one, and after that, uh, we'll have a chance to discuss this topic with those very distinguished experts. And uh, you will also be able to post questions on the chat. I will try to look them up as we go. I uh, can't promise that we'll be able to answer everything, but at least uh, I will try to check the chat every now and then, even though I think we can fill 50 to 60 minutes without any questions at all. First of all, I would like to introduce Professor Fabrizio Pregliazio. Uh, he's a director of healthcare and professor at the Galicia Hospital in Milan. Uh, he's also the chairman of ANAPAS, which is the National Association of Public Assistance Volunteers in Italy. And he's a very, very distinguished virologue and uh, also one of the first, I guess, in Europe that. Uh, Outed the corona pandemic uh, since Italy, unfortunately, one of the first countries hit uh, by the virus about a year ago. Uh, so uh, I'm very happy to have Professor Pegliasco on the on the panel. Uh, our second panelist is Katarina de Hauk. Uh, she's a reader in health and economics and director of School of Public Health at the Imperial College in London. Uh, she also has a position with the Abdul Latif Jamal Institute for Disease and Emergency Analytics. That's a long name. <laughs> I think I'm uh, And Katerina will bring a lot of expertise when it comes to the macroeconomic part of what the pandemic will do for society and the world of work. So uh, that. Uh, we move out from Europe and move to uh, I'm told that there might be a bit of a time lag here when we talk with Kathy Xu, who's in Shanghai. Uh, so you can just uh, have patience if there will be some time lagging uh, when we do the questions and answers. Anyway, Katie is a friend of mine within the Inangar Network. And uh, she's also an employment law expert with the River Delta Law Firm. And she will talk a bit about the Chinese experience with the pandemic. Uh, last but absolutely not least, uh, we have Lorna Gibb. She's a senior HR and employment expert with Nokia. So she's actually in charge of Nokia's whole HR and employment law uh, department. Uh, she's also previously worked with EasyJet and Skyscanner. And I noticed when I looked at 
uh, LinkedIn that she also has an LM degree from University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And why do I mention that? Well, I'm an old Duke. I went to Duke University in, in Durham. <laughs> uh, I'll have to admit that Chapel Hill is a nicer place to be at. So uh, um, having that said, we have something in common than spending a year in North Carolina when we went to law school. So anyway, that's the panel. So let's start the session. Then. And uh, as you know, we've all been more or less affected by the pandemic and both in big and small. When I looked at the news this morning, I know for instance, at Volvo, Volvo heavy trucks will have to close down their operations now for four weeks because they have no components. Uh, when I ordered a new oven to our house a couple of days ago, they told me that I had to wait for three weeks because there are no ovens available because of disturbances in, in, in delivery systems around the world. So naturally, 12, 13 months into the pandemic, we are, we are still of course, affected in different ways by it. And, and mostly, of course, uh, people who have to uh, get the disease. So uh, we're going to start with Katerine, actually. And uh, I'm going to, uh, I wonder if you could sort of elaborate a bit about the economics of infectious diseases from a macro perspective. That is, uh, how does lockdowns affect the economy? And, uh, and how do you sort of project pandemics when it comes to guidance for health contra economy. Please, Thank you, Carla. Well, and first, thank you for inviting me to this um, exciting event. Um, it's a super interesting topic, so I'm really looking forward to our discussions in the next hour. So first, I mean, obviously, the topic of economics of infectious diseases um, is a huge topic, so I try to boil it really down to the issues that are, I think, concerning for many countries around the world at the moment which is how do we get out of relatively stringent lockdown <coughs> restrictions. Katarina, yeah, sorry for interrupting, but I think your mic is a bit low. We're, we're having, so, I at least having some problem hearing. Oh, okay. That's um, better, much better. Much is better. it better now? Yeah. Um, yes, so, um, so let me talk first about um, really the from the UK, which obviously we are just seeing the tail end of a very stringent lockdown um, and uh, a successful, uh, really uh, impressive scale up of uh, the vaccination program uh, in our country. Now we know that, or well, there are estimates that the GDP hit during lockdown is about 25% during stringent lockdowns. We lose about 25% of GDP. For the UK economy, this is about 37 billion per month. Um, some estimates put that higher, at up to 49 billion per month. So obviously, these are enormous costs, and we um, need to see that in perspective when we think about the costs of mitigation measures that can prevent stringent lockdowns being implemented. Now, obviously, this is very problematic to evaluate that reliably. These GDP losses. Um, Many estimates compare against pre-pandemic production, which um, is problematic because obviously um, we should compare it to a world where the pandemic is unmitigated, but um, that's something that we cannot observe. Also, it's a short-term view, of course. Um, the Bank of England predicts a relatively fast recovery um, for the economy after the lifting of lockdowns, hopefully, when they happen. Um, it fast in comparison to the financial crisis, but they expect some scarring to continue. So there will be some GDP 
it was lost during lockdown. They will never, or at least not in the midterm, um, recover. There are short term and permanent changes. It's sorry to interrupt, you, Katarina, uh, but and we still seem to have some problem with the with the sound. Right. Okay. It Let sounds better try. when you turn your head to to the right than that. You do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mike, is that better? No. It goes off a bit. No. 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 You're, you're okay. You're better now. You're better now. No. Okay. Um, so, um, yes, sorry about that. Um, so we, um, as Carl mentioned before, there will be some changes to supply chains. There will be possibly a long-term change in the relation between capital and labor, so greater automation, disruption to supply chains, and so forth. Um, there are also other costs to consider, consider social costs, mental health costs, and the costs to lost education. Now, let's think about the interventions uh, that prevent these stringent lockdowns or that will allow us to get out of these stringent lockdowns earlier. So first you have test and trace. Um, the costs for the UK are um, estimated to be about 20 billion in about a year. So if you compare that against the cost of lockdown just for one month, that compares quite favorably. However, we did see, we had the experience in the UK at least, that it did not prevent the winter lockdown. So we are challenged by implementation issues and high levels of infections that make any test and trace system keel over. But I think there are also underlying problems related to the general epidemiology of the virus that make test and trace challenging. Um, if you rely on cases to come forward for testing um, in a test and trace program, but up to 80% of cases are asymptomatic, then it's clear that probably the contribution to transmission reduction is not that great. In fact, there are estimates that it could be between 20 and 30%. So although the costs um, compared to lockdown seem favorable, the efficacy, at least as it is implemented in many countries where uh, cases come forward to be tested, is challenged. Now, vaccinations, of course, are an intervention that confers immunity, at least for some time. And um, it also allows us, it's, it's an intervention where we don't have to keep the foot on the pedal. Once we achieve a high level of coverage, um, we can go back to almost normal in other aspects of life. The problem, of course, is the vaccination coverage that we need. It's estimated to be around 75% that we need coverage of um, in order to uh, send the pandemic into reverse. If we think about that uptake is at best 80%, efficacy maybe 80%, and we cannot vaccinate children, which in the UK is about 20% of the population, and we multiply these three um, um, percentages, you, you can see that it's challenging to reach 75%. And of course, variants are the big challenge that's lying ahead of us, but maybe more to that later. So I, let me stop at this point. Thank you, uh, I think that will sort of nicely move over to uh, Professor Pagliaccio's uh, expertise. So, so I would just like to ask, about the EU vaccination program and the status right now and also how, how things are looking out in Italy at the moment from your perspective. Uh, Katarina, well, yeah, it's very, very pleasure is with uh, uh, 
you. Uh, Katrina well explained the problem regarding the lockdown and the, and the effect. I believe uh, the vaccination is uh, the only possibility to return to work uh, with uh, a reduction, not at zero, but of the risk of uh, coronavirus uh, infection. Uh, it's very, very important. Uh, the, the velocity, the, the speed of the vaccination. In Italy, there is a, a problem regarding the disponibility of uh, doses of vaccine. It is, is a, a problem for a, a delay in uh, to realize a very important protection. I believe uh, this is only a step in this situation, but I believe the, uh, the necessity to uh, uh, increase the, uh, the vaccination and uh, uh, there is uh, the importance to uh, discuss uh, the, 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 for imposing uh, obligation of workers uh, to have a vaccination. There is uh, in Italy some uh, uh, actually uh, decision of the government and uh, in the uh, discussion the, the, this problem because uh, there is a, a, an social interest respect to the uh, problematic and the uh, free of uh, the, the choice of the, the, the single person. And I believe uh, the pianification as expected at the European level of uh, passport, uh, vaccination passport. I believe there is a, a complementary uh, disposition that permit uh, an use and uh, to, uh, uh, to reduce the refuse of vaccine. Because in Italy, but I believe uh, in the experience in other countries, there is a, this a problem regarding 20% of population. And uh, this uh, is a, a very, very high level of, uh, of uh, uh, the efficacy of vaccination because uh, the uh, herd immunity is uh, the, the, the objective, uh, the, the, uh, the result expected in three, four months uh, uh, after the, the start of vaccination. And uh, I believe uh, uh, to know also uh, the uh, problem regarding the effective the of vaccination because it's uh, actually is not clear that the vaccinated vaccinated person is able or not able to transmit the virus and this is uh, a problem because the registration of a vaccine is a respect to uh, a, a not uh, to reduce and the effect of that and I believe it is necessary to remain on the organization with respect of protection dispositive, mask, and so on for months. It is necessary because the vaccination is only a possibility to reduction the effect. Because uh, the effect of vaccination is at today not, not clear. And I believe there is a necessity of revaccination, booster doses in the in four to three years because the uh, coronavirus is not uh, uh, 
there is not a possibility to reduce at zero with only a wave of vaccination. And I believe it is necessary to, uh, to discuss and uh, for definition of, uh, in my opinion, uh, the obligation of, uh, of workers to have uh, a vaccination. Thank you, Thank you very interesting. And, and especially we, we're, it's going to be very interesting to know about the transmission of the virus once people start getting the vaccine in, 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 into larger, larger, in larger numbers. So if we sort of shrink the, the, the perspective a bit and go back to what we usually deal with, which is employment law, I'll turn to Lorna then and, and ask about how this will all affect employers. And what I mean then is how, how do you work in Nokia in this case with, can, can you demand compulsory vaccination of your workers? And how will you handle people that actually refuse the vaccine and still have to work with, with colleagues and so on and so forth? Lorna, please. Sure, of course, and uh, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to speak. It's a real pleasure, and thank you, uh, Fabrizio. I think we will touch on on some of the same issues, actually. Um, so at Nokia, obviously, we're in um, a privileged position in that a lot of our workforce are able to, for the majority of our workforce, are able to work from home safely. Uh, so we don't face a lot of the issues, for example, that the airline industry, the uh, travel industry and the um, caring industry face. Um, I know, for example, uh, this week on the news, it's been very prevalent that the care industry within the UK and I imagine across the world um, are facing issues of looking into whether or not they can mandate the vaccine um, for those working in, in the caring and medical professions. Um, at Nokia, we don't... Um, face that sort of level of necessity to have our employees back into the workplace. And so we are very much looking at how we can encourage our employees um, to take the vaccine. We have, for the vast majority of our staff, been very fortunate to be able to work from home. Uh, so we won't face a lot of those issues. For example, should we be mandating vaccines to allow our employees to come into the workplace? Um, personally, I think if we were in that position, it's a very tricky line legally. Um, I think it's you know one that will have to be handled extremely sensitively. And, you know, there would a lot of um, implications such as discrimination issues um, if you start getting into insisting that people are vaccinated. Uh, what we're doing, though, is we're ensuring very clear comms across our business that we do encourage the uptake of the vaccine. Um, in certain countries, we are assisting employees, for example, in China and India to with their transport to the vaccination centres. Uh, we're also trying very hard within our comms to dispel myths about the vaccine, um, which are obviously very pre prevalent um, throughout the globe. And we're liaising very closely with our health and safety colleagues in Nokia to ensure that we're taking all possible measures uh, for where employees do return to the workplace to ensure that it's safe. Um, but of course, there are, you know, there's, so many untested issues, I would say, currently, um, which we really won't have resolutions to. For example, can we can employers mandate vaccines? Could we prevent um, members of staff from returning to a workplace if they haven't been vaccinated? Uh, could we insist that they ensure proof of vaccine? Um, you know, there's 
but it's it's fraught, I would say, with legal issues from a, a discrimination perspective, from a data privacy perspective. Uh, you know, we we know that in a lot of countries it's being done on an age demographic. So we will have a vast majority, for example, in the UK of younger employees who have not had the vaccine. Um, and then we face issues of sort of uh, religious and uh, personal views on on whether someone may want to be vaccinated or not, and then perhaps making that known in a workplace, and then perhaps employees being targeted, um, you know, if they choose not to. So it's you know it's really I would say there's a, a lot of issues that are unanswered at the moment uh, that we have to try to work through. At Nokia, we're fortunate because, as I say, we've we've been able to operate very effectively with the vast majority of people working from home. Um, but I know, you know, in, in the airline industry, in the um, caring industry, that it's it's a really live issue now. And I, it's, um, for example, just this very morning was being debated in the UK with regard to the health secretary and whether or not um, he will mandate vaccines for people working in care homes. And I know that that's going to present, uh, you know, a plethora of legal challenges um, and moral challenges as that develops. Thank you, Lorna. Uh, you actually mentioned China here, so that gives me a nice bridge over to Katie, who will uh, talk a bit about the developments in China and, and how Chinese employment law is handling the corona situation. Naturally, China has been uh, been a bit, at least a bit easier off than Europe since the outbreak of the pandemic, but it's still an issue in China as well. And uh, I know that your vaccination program is in full swing as well. So please, Katie. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Clara. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, today it's my absolute pleasure to be here with you today and share my legal expertise. And I hope it uh, will bring some value to you and your company or your work in the future. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I would like to uh, share some information about China, China's practice, of course, from the perspective of a uh, employment law. Uh, first, uh, currently, employers cannot compare uh, their employees to be vaccinated uh, because according to uh, Article 50 of uh, Vaccine Administration Law of a PRC, if it is uh, necessary to conduct mass vaccination on a national scale or across regions or provinces, uh, the decision shall be made by the um, Healthy Department of the State Council. No unit or individual uh, can carry out mass vaccination without uh, authorization. Uh, at the same time, um, we know maybe some people uh, who have a severe allergic uh, reactions to vaccines, medicines, or even food, and women who are um, breastfeeding during the pregnancy who may also at a um, bitter risk to their own health if they receive a vaccination. Therefore, uh, currently, um, there are no national policy mandating um, all the people, uh, and uh, the, especially employer cannot compare their employee to be vaccinated. Or else, this would uh, constitute an uh, infringement of people's personal rights. Um, second, although um, employers cannot uh, uh, do not have a right to compare their employee to be vaccinated against COVID-19. They have obligation to uh, cooperate with the government vaccination effort. Uh, after the local government have introduced the policies for emergency uh, vaccination, 
such uh, such as uh, staff working in uh, imported cold chain, port quarantine, um, uh, also uh, ship pilotage, airline, air crew, and uh, fresh market, and uh, public transport, medical disease control, and etc., uh, with a higher risk of uh, infection. Uh, so, if uh, persons within the enterprises who are eligible for emergency vaccination are willing to be vaccinated, the employer have a right to refuse the entry to the workplace uh, or the company to the employees who uh, have not been vaccinated and who may uh, pose a um, threat to the uh, work environment. The company may also uh, reasonably reassign uh, these employees from jobs uh, where they are at a higher risk of an epidemic or allow them to work uh, remotely from home where available. At the same time, also uh, the employees who do not wish to be vaccinated can be asked to sign an undertaking letter and clarify that uh, they, they themselves bear the adverse uh, consequences of uh, contracting uh, COVID-19 and, and uh, maybe the, the damages caused to the company and also to the um, public environment. Uh, this uh, some uh, solutions or measures can be taken by the employers to control and uh, uh, maintain their internal management. However, even if an employee uh, does not want, want to, um, to be vaccinated, this does not mean uh, the employer has a right to uh, terminate them directly. Uh, as to how to handle such a situation, according to Chinese law still, uh, we should uh, to evaluate the situation and uh, to, to uh, can, uh, according to all the detailed situation uh, to make a decision on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, thank you, Carol. This is a parent I have. Thank you, Kiri. Having uh, uh, I mean, listened to that, it's, it's kind of interesting that, that we actually have sort of similar regulations when you look at worldwide when it comes to the right of employees and, and, the, and the possibility for employers to force vaccination and the like. There is a discussion about this in Sweden as well. And, and like the most of Europe, we don't have a mandatory vaccination program in the sense that you have to take them, but they are all offered uh, the vaccination programs. Uh, but that, that also means that you have a discussion on can you force someone that, for instance, works in hospital to, to take the vaccine? And, uh, and I think the current conclusion is that you might be able to do that if you hire someone, a new employee, but it'd be very, very complicated to force a current employee to actually take the vaccine. Then, of course, it might be very... Uh, it might not be prudent to have a person working at, uh, at certain areas of a hospital without a vaccine, but that's that's another issue. Uh, it's also interesting to sort of hear there are differences between EU countries in, in, in the practical implications. So I'm actually going to turn to, to, to Lorna again, because Nokia as an international company, and, and Katie will be free to fill in here as well, and, uh, what's your experience when it comes to how different countries react and how you handle it in an international company. What I'm thinking about, for instance, is that you're in the UK, which has been very hardly hit by the pandemic, and then Nokia is a Finnish company, and Finland being one of the countries with the least COVID spread. Is there a problem there when you deal with that within the company? 
I think from a legal perspective, no. I mean, we always follow the in-country legal uh, guidance and approach. We have our overarching uh, Nokia uh, approach on everything, which which we will always comply with local legislation. Um, But we have our overriding policies on on health and safety, for example, um, which we ensure are adhered to. From an employee relations perspective and an engagement perspective, though, it's, it's interesting because um, I think what we find, you know, a year, almost a year really with, with lockdown going on, that's creating a lot of um, issues for people and um, particularly working in a, in a multinational company, which is very much a 24-7 operation. Um, what we need to be mindful of is that each of, our, uh, each of our people is in a different situation, regardless of where they are in the world. Um, and, you know, it can be difficult if, for example, in Finland, where our headquarters is, you know, there's no, uh, at a given point in time, there is no lockdown, the schools are open, um, everyone's free to do as they like. Whereas in the UK, people are facing um, you know, at, for example, in January, um, homeschooling, complete lockdown. Uh, you know, really, unab- if 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 people have caring or childcare responsibilities, it's very difficult for for employees. And I think it was easier at the beginning of the pandemic from that perspective because most people were in the same position. Um, but what we find now is that it's very much different on a country by country basis. So from an employee relations and an HR perspective, it's always being mindful that all colleagues are not in the same position now. And, you know, some people are really facing challenges, which have been going going on for months. Um, And that leads us into issues such as burnout and, you know, how to keep um, an employee population engaged through very difficult times. And I think that's posing many issues now because everyone is in a very different situation. Uh, We have, you know, a a very, very large employee population in the US. um, And obviously, even in different states of the US, the situation is quite different with regard to lockdown and rules and regulations. And I was just speaking to one of my team in Singapore, they're, for example, all back in the office. Um, if you compare that to, to Finland, it's going into another uh, period of lockdown. France and Germany back into lockdown again, particularly over Easter. Um, and then in the UK, um, for the majority of people, very much still in lockdown. So it's just trying to be mindful um, of, of the different situations that all of our people are facing and the difficulties that they may have on a day-to-day basis. And Katie, what about China? Are you still sort of working from home or are you pretty much back into normal when it comes to how employers sort of handle return to work policies in China? Uh, Yeah, okay. Um, Actually, um, recently some some of my clients have a lot of talk with me about uh, these issues and uh, I think some people may curious about uh, uh, yes yeah, such a question like uh, uh, should the employer check their employee are vaccinated and do employees have to show any documents to uh, demonstrate that they have been vaccinated I think to uh, I would like to uh, share this information and to answer this question it really depends. Like uh, I just 
expand. Currently, there is no uh, policy mandating all the people to be vaccinated. So for the general public uh, who are not part of the priority group, companies do not have a right to, uh, to check whether the employee have been uh, vaccinated and even ask them to provide uh, documents about that. Uh, however, for the priority groups pri uh, who are eligible for the emergency vaccination uh, due to their high risk of um, infection um, after, uh, before they return to work after vaccination, uh, they will, uh, they, I think they, they, they should uh, to present such a document and clarify that uh, they have met the uh, worker environmental safety requirements. And also uh, one, another question come to my mind recently, uh, uh, maybe ask uh, frequently about my clients that uh, um, yeah, if uh, an employee, what if, what if the employee uh, feel maybe receive some ab abnormal uh, reaction uh, after the vaccination and how to deal with such treatment? Uh, actually, um, uh, this, uh, this, this employee uh, entitled to uh, sick leave and uh, uh, all about uh, the sick leave and uh, medical, um, med medical period protection according to China labor law all uh, apply to such a situation. Uh, so they can enjoy treatment according to uh, such policies. I think uh, this is some, some basic uh, questions, but uh, very hot. So mm -hmm. this uh, I want to share today, uh, here. Yeah. Thank you, Heidi. Uh, since we're all in different places now, we, we of course love to be sitting on a stage in London or somewhere else doing this. Uh, we all sort of wonder when can we start doing that again? That is travel uh, for work-related purposes, not necessarily going to the Canaries on vacation, but actually doing important stuff <laughs> that we do sometimes when we travel. Uh, so I, I, I was wondering about a bit how to handle this with testing, you know, the different mutations that are out there and the general duty of care when you're flying. So I wonder if Katerina had some input on that. Uh, thank you. I mean, that is, of course, a question. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, that's a question that the UK is thinking about at the moment uh, with the mutations occurring in our main trading partners um, in the European Union. Um, so the main mutations are a concern because of immune escape. So the existing vaccines and the existing formulations of the vaccines may not work or may not work as well. It's, there is very little evidence currently, and I think most of that comes from a laboratory, so not from actual human beings who have been um, vaccinated. So the concern are really the, South, the variants that we call the South African and Brazilian variants because they appeared first and they share um, a similar mutation, which makes them challenging for the existing vaccines. Now in France, I think at the moment, um, up to 10% of cases are the South African variant now. So these are between 1,500 and 2,000 people per day. Um, who are infected with this South African variant where the vaccines don't work as well. Now, now countries, of course, are challenged how to keep these variants out of their own countries, um, particular countries which are ahead in the vaccine rollout against the original strain of the virus, such as the UK. 
The key challenge is to buy time. So we need to buy time to update the existing vaccines. And some vaccines are easier to update uh, to work against the new strains than others. I'm not an expert in this, but I think the mRNA vaccines, such as the Pfizer vaccines, are faster to update than the others. Um, it's very difficult to keep out um, the viruses completely, but um, the challenge is the task is to reduce the risk. So at the moment, the UK is um, discussing lateral flow tests for um, so screening um, of uh, um, lorry drivers who drive goods into the UK through the tunnel. Um, now, I think there is also a wider issue of vaccine passports and the sense of them and the applicability and the possibility of, um, of this making this um, a condition of travel. Um, but also, I think the wider economic question of how will travel change? I mean, some people think that we will have permanent changes in the demand for business travel and maybe even in the demand for leisure travel. So that is something I think to consider for uh, for the for the next years. Thank you, Gabriela. Uh, Dr. Gagliasco, uh, I'd like to pose one more question for you, then, which is sort of related, because this all talk, this all all comes down to sort of lift the lockdowns. From a medical standpoint, what is your view on when, when can we start lifting lockdowns and how, how do you see sort of the, the end to the pandemic? You know, what's the time frame and how, how do you sort of view that? It's very difficult to, <laughs> the prevision, but I believe that there is the possibility to, to a new normality uh, in uh, mm -hmm six months in Italy uh, mathematical model uh, evidence with uh, a high speed of uh, vaccination the return of uh, normality in uh, seven 12 months mm -hmm. uh, about uh, now uh, I believe this is a possibility I I, I have uh, just a problem regarding to the mutation Katrina mm -hmm. explained very well the, the problem in the future because when the vaccination go on, the, uh, the possibility to have a new mutation is a, a reality, as some other uh, bacterial and vaccine with the, the use of vaccine as a pneumonia vaccine. Uh, and this is uh, the, the problem for the future, for the normality. And, I believe it is necessary a protocol, very stringent and very, very uh, used in all the situation, in community, but the problem is regarding the responsibility in, uh, in the, the, the work and the place and the necessary to, the, to remain in, uh, in, uh, with great, great attention to the, uh, the possibility to uh, infection in uh, in workplace. Uh, this is a, a, a situation that is not in, a, in the, the months for for many time. I I I, I, I believe uh, for the uh, the future. Uh, I have a sort of a just 
thought about the differences in our in our uh, approaches here. You know, you, you, you're talking about you have mask mandates in a lot of the jurisdictions we're talking about here, and and and, and in Sweden, of course. The, the reaction has been different. There are no mask mandates generally, except when you go to public transport, and and the, the approach has been more relaxed in general. Uh, do you think, uh, Dr. Pogiasko, that that Europe would have sort of gained on having a common approach to this uh, and not having twenty seven different <laughs> you know approaches over the board? Maybe there is a, a necessary uh, to uh, a, a conjunction and unique voice uh, of uh, Europe regarding the preparedness program and uh, the organization of vaccination, uh, but not on uh, the uh, approach regarding the passport for the travel, but for the uh, activity. Uh, with the, because the problem of pandemic is overall in the world and overall uh, in the, the count, European country. And uh, actually there is no presence of Europe regarding the disposition for in the past regarding the uh, public health concern and the uh, national uh, authorities is Uh, view the, the, the necessity of uh, uh, control and uh, or, or organization. The European Centre Disease Control is very well organized in Sweden, and uh, there are many, many colleagues with uh, experience and uh, very, very interesting uh, study in pandemic and in so on. But only is uh, a attention, uh, evaluation, but not the specific uh, uh, activity for uh, definition in a juridical aspect. I'm, I'm going to sort of continue on that subject, Katerina. From a economic then perspective, of course, this economics and medical matters sort of go hand in hand here but but how do you best see to lift the lockdowns you know how, how do you work that and i also heard there is this preparedness program the g20 pandemic preparedness program you can sort of talk a little bit about that what have we what have we learned you know what should we done differently and and then how do we end this you know once the disease has sort of gone down a bit you know and and general general perspective on that these are really hard questions. Yeah, you're a hard person. That's <laughs> that's why we have you here. I, I get the most difficult. Yeah. You know, um, so. Fabrizio already mentioned the importance of um, a global governance and a global approach to that, um, which um, unfortunately um, has been sadly absent during this pandemic. And I think we would have fared much better with a stronger. Uh, global voice in um, uh, dealing with the pandemic, but then also in the vaccine allocation. Now, of course, there are um, uh, several organizations um, trying to um, uh, achieve a more uh, um, um, equitable allocation of the vaccine across countries. Um, but so far, um, that um, that is really lacking. And of course, until um, everyone is vaccinated um, around the world, we will continue 
um, dealing with these problems of variants being introduced into countries that are further ahead with their vaccine. So how to deal with that, I don't quite know. I mean, we can't keep our borders closed forever. Um, so as we come, hopefully, slowly out of this lockdown situation, vigilance is really important also in order to detect these variants, um, we need to step up surveillance, particularly genomic sequencing, um, to, uh, to detect variants as they occur, um, address the problem of vaccine hesitancy, which Lorna has talked about before with suitable um, approaches, and then some smart test and trace systems that are able to um, to contain outbreaks as they occur. I, it's daunting, I think, for all of us to think about pandemic preparedness now that we are still, um, still in the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, it's, I think, pretty obvious to anyone working on this that we almost don't need a return on investment calculation of pandemic preparedness because it is obvious now seeing these enormous costs uh, these enormous economic and health costs um, of the pandemic, these uh, high number of deaths, that pandemic preparedness is for sure a cost-saving intervention. Um, as I said, invest, this entails investment in good surveillance, um, but then importantly in resilient health systems, including strong laboratory capacity. And investing in health systems is not only good for pandemic preparedness, but also in dealing with other more endemic diseases um, that uh, countries face around the world. I think what we have learned as well is that a decentralized implementation of measures, so be it test and trace programs or vaccination programs, tends to be more successful than centralized approaches. Having good pandemic preparedness plans um, for various pathogens, so not only for flu um, or new emerging flu viruses, but also for um, these SARS-CoV uh, viruses that um, have a higher, uh, uh, that have slightly different epidemiological characteristics, which make them dif different to deal with. Um, investing in manufacturing of vaccines that can be scaled up fast. And then, as I said previously, the global governance, which I think should not be underestimated how important that is. Um, so I think several um, institutions now are trying to step up to strengthen this global governance, WHO, uh, the G20, um, and also the Global Fund um, now increasingly being interested in the topic of pandemic preparedness. And there is a real drive, I think, in these international organizations to step up to prevent this from happening again. Yeah, no, I think we all agree. And, and, and especially considering this, all these export bans that have been going back and forth now with the, with the vaccines, which of course differs depending on where you are in the world right now, and it all differs actually for us in the panel as well, where you are uh, and, and how fast you will you, you will actually get the vaccines. I, I spoke with one of our colleagues uh, from, from CM Murray who's, who's in Chile right now, and they're already down there to vaccinate people that are 40 and above. So they, they've already vaccinated everyone above 50. So, so their vaccination program is a, is a great success, obviously, while, while, for instance, in most of Europe and I think in Sweden and, and the rest of the Scandinavian countries, we're around 10% of the population this far. Any thought there, uh, Professor Pugliasco? 
there is the problem with the exigency and uh, because uh, the negative uh, opinion uh, relating to the vaccine and uh, anti-vaccine movement mm -hmm. yeah. uh, existed ever since vaccine uh, were uh, discovered <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, in time. Uh, some theories was a reduction, but the other no. Uh, and uh, the, 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 is a, the, there is a lack of the, the, the fate of vaccination. I believe in the, in the future there is a, a problem because remain unrespected to the therapy that is possibility to uh, uh, use uh, a, a medical device or, or with uh, with uh, efficacy and uh, open to effect vaccination mm. is uh, very difficult to uh, to comp to define the level of uh, security and the efficacy because mm. the uh, the vaccination is uh, executed during the well done uh, situation with uh, no problem mm. and uh, effect uh, rare effect uh, uh, negative are very very related respect to the importance of vaccination vaccinations that is important to personal uh, security but for community and for the uh, activity of the the, in the community well I'm, I'm glad you're, you're preaching to the choir as you say because my, my wife it used to be in short vaccination program for children in the Stockholm municipality. So, uh, so if anyone here would say no to vaccine, we'd be thrown out of the house. <laughs> so uh, soon we can get it the better. Uh, anyone else? We're, we're sort of running into, we, we've sort of uh, done all our prepared sort of uh, questions. So I'm, I'm wondering if anyone in the audience has anything they would like to post to the panel. Uh, I think there are a lot of knowledge here that can be tapped from everyone out there. Uh, so I'll just give you a second if there's anything you can come up with. I actually have a question to Lona, if I may. Yeah, please. please. Yeah, Lona, you said, um, and I found it very interesting, that you um, uh, stepped up communications in your organization to address issues of vaccine hesitancy. Um, can you just share with us what your interventions are there? Yeah, I mean, it's basically, we have a very um, considered comms plan working in conjunction with our um, health and safety team. And it's really to address, because we're a global organization, uh, you know, we try to put out global messages and, you know, we we very our comms are very much um, skewed to. We really, really encourage everyone to to take the vaccine um, without mandating it. We do, you know, we we don't want to go that far, um, but it's very much um, you know from a very senior level being led that we we really uh, promote this and encourage this, um, and you know we we. We publish articles on the benefits of, of vaccination and try to dispel some of the myths. Um, there's been a lot of um, 
obviously myths over the past few weeks in relation to certain vaccines. So what we're trying to do is is, is really dispel these um, with with the evidence that we have available um, from our medical experts and from our health and safety colleagues. So we've really stepped up our efforts to do that um, to encourage as big an uptake as possible. Thank you. I have one more question for you, Lorna, since you're sort of, uh, you have your mic on. Uh, how are you managing the balance between global messaging and country-specific cultural considerations? Uh, it's a question for you from Nyla on the, in the audience. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always a tricky balance. And, you know, I think every multinational faces this, this issue. But, um, you know, all the majority of our policies and procedures are all global. Um, and then we, we, we tailor very um, rarely, um, but just comply with local legislation. But we really try to give global messages as best as we can. Right. And then I have another question, which I'm not really sure who, who will feel uh, confident in answering. Is there a danger that social interaction internationally in person within the employment sphere is at risk going forward? I guess there is. Yes, well. yes, yes. Um, I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, we we all have to try to to combat that. I think uh, you know the use of video conferencing and uh, you, you know be, the fact that we've all been able to continue for the last year interacting um, is testament to how well that can work. But clearly, uh, you know, in in person interaction is is very limited, and it could be, as Fabrizio said, it could be really some time before that is able to happen again. Uh, you seem to be very popular, Laura. <laughs> ask a lot of questions to you. I guess it's because there's lawyers in the audience. Do you see any risks related to discrimination issues related to the handling of the situation in your workforce? And if so, how to mitigate? I think there are huge discrimination risks, um, uh, and that you know that when we were discussing previously uh, mandating vaccines. Um, then obviously we get into discrimination risks because as my um, panel members have referenced, there are so many groups uh, where the advice is that they should not be vaccinated or indeed that their belief may be that they don't believe in vaccination. But I think in particular of the the advice for pregnant um, uh, pregnant employees I for um I, I believe that they're certainly no expert on this but I believe you know uh, individuals who have immune issues perhaps may be advised not to have the vaccine um and there are simply those you know as we've discussed who don't believe in vaccinations um and then I think you get into a whole a whole realm of uh, potential discrimination issues within different laws with regard to, you know, what it, is that actually a belief, a belief in not being vaccinated or, uh, you, you know, that you you are in a certain category where it's that you're advised not to. Um, so I, I think, you know, that I, I'm sure we have many, many experts in our audience as well, but I think yeah. these are untested issues that we will now see um, as in the months ahead as we as we try to face those issues. Um, but I, I, I really believe it's a sort of Pandora's box of potential discrimination issues. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll, I'll go to Professor Pereyaski again. Uh, 
There is a question if you think that vaccination should be mandatory in the global world, but uh, I would also like to know how you handle this at, at your specific hospital uh, with your employees there. Uh, if, you, if you work in the emergency room, for instance, how will you handle someone that is an anti-vaccination personnel? In Italy, there is a discussion regarding the mandatory uh, vaccination for uh, health uh, health care worker and a level of discussion regarding also in the recent past the regarding to the vaccination of babies uh, regarding some uh, illness for there is a initially there is a very concern but uh, in the year regarding to the vaccination uh, mandatory for infants there are high level of uh, use and uh, high level of uh, percentage of coverage but i believe uh, there is a, a discussion regarding to uh, the private uh, and the interest of the public health is very very difficult the mandatory is uh, the faster and the simpler system to, to uh, arrive at the uh, herd immunity that there is a public health of that's true that's true i know that we had a discussion about this in, in sweden and and, uh, and for a similar case when it comes to beliefs uh, our high labor court anyway has said that uh, for instance a midwife who refused to perform abortions would not could be terminated because that was sort of what was in the work description. So I would imagine that if there isn't a work description that if you deal with this sort of patients, you have to be vaccinated, that could cause grounds for termination. And if you refuse to do that, uh, that is just conjunction on my part, but it, it might end up that way. Uh, I have one last question then for Lorna before we break the session and go to, uh, to the roundtable discussions. And that is from an Nokia standpoint, and if you are allowing employees to return to work, to refuse to take the vaccine, do you ask them to share if they took the vaccine? And that's also a private question. Uh, yeah. uh, we are not, actually. No. Uh, that, that wouldn't be our approach. Okay, good. All right. Uh, I think we're sort of running into the end of the session. We have about a minute and 50 seconds left, which I think is very good timing. So thank you, everyone, for participating in the panel. Uh, there is a minute left, and so if anyone has some sort of final remarks, we'll be more than happy to hear them. Uh, otherwise, I think we will be spread out now for a for a on different tables uh, to be able to have a, a a roundtable sort of interaction with the audience, if I'm not incorrect. So, uh, if our technical staff will start doing that and i get a lot of thanks and a great panel and everything from everyone here on the in the chat room so so uh, warm thank you from my part uh, i had the easy part just asking questions and sort of not doing the hard stuff that you did so let's see what happens now <laughs>